Amen. Some books have prologues. They begin with a prologue. Maybe you skip prologues. A prologue is similar to a prelude to a symphony. A prologue introduces those key notes or key themes that prepare the listener or the reader for what's to come. The things that arise in a prologue will undergird the rest of the story. The Bible has a prologue, which is Genesis 1 through 11, which we've been studying the last several months. And as we've walked through it, I've noticed two notes in particular that have sounded loudly. One note sounds the failure or the failings of human beings again and again. Adam and Eve reject their maker. Cain murders his brother. The generations of Noah, they have descended into constant wickedness and violence. And then as we'll see today in the story of the Tower of Babel, the descendants that come after the flood from Noah and his family, they again fall into sin. Rather than spreading and filling the earth and glorifying God, they build a tower not for God's namesake, but for their namesake. And so you can't honestly read Genesis 1 through 11 and see it as a self-help book. I mean, it doesn't say you should look deep within and find your inner goodness and bring it to bear on the world. Instead, I mean, if you're honestly reading it, not just kind of cherry-picking the image of God phrase at the beginning, if you're reading it in all its scope, you leave off skeptical at best, and really you should be a bit discouraged. I'm like that? I descend from these people? What hope do I have? Well, this brings us to the second note that is sounded in the prologue or the prelude, and that's the note of the grace of the creator. What you find in Genesis is not just a creator God that kind of sets a clock in motion and steps back, but rather he seems almost strangely concerned with these creatures, even the sinful ones. He's constantly involved. He's there. And at times when you think it should be pure judgment, you're surprised by this thing that the Bible will later call grace. He tenderly clothes Adam and Eve. He puts a mark on Cain a murderer, to protect him. He preserves his creation and his people by Noah and the ark through his judgment. And then as we'll see in the the Tower of Babel, perhaps most striking if you can really dig and draw out this thread, God begins to mete out judgment upon the failures of man, not simply to crush them, but he meets out judgment in a way that actually scatters them right into the streams of his bigger purposes. He somehow can turn the failings of human plans into the fulfillment of divine purposes. It's a theme that will come, become crucial as we read the Bible and as we live our lives. So the failures of man and the grace of God. And in the story of the Tower of Babel, what I want us to see today is how these interlock. 
It's not just that there's failures over here and there's grace over here. But it's, as I said, it's that God can actually take these failings and somehow reshape them into a fulfillment. He scatters the builders of Babel, but in doing so flings them right into his divine purposes to fill the earth. Before I went to seminary, the summer before I went to seminary, I apprenticed with a potter. It's a long story. And it was really fun. And I would kind of cut his grass and clean up his studio. And then he would teach me how to throw pottery. It's, it's really hard to do if you've never done it. You know, you have to center the clay and then you shape, you put a hole in it, build the walls up. And as I was learning to do this, I often would kind of struggle to get the clay centered, and I would begin to to build the walls of what would look like a small bowl. And then under my unskilled hands, it it would wobble and become deformed, and it would look totally ruined. It would just be a blob on the wheel. And I would think, well, I need to throw this out and get new clay. And Tom, the, the potter, would come over, move me out of my chair, and says, you don't need to throw it out. And he would start to spin the wheel. He'd put a little more water on it. And he had these big, strong hands. And he would press the same clay back into the center, pushing down on it, pushing in on it. And then he would reform it and draw out the same piece of clay into a beautiful shape. And it was amazing. And he would say to me, you don't need to start over with a new piece of clay. You just need to reshape it. And this is what I want you to feel as one of the central themes that arises out of Genesis 1 through 11 and is particularly seen in the Tower of Babel episode. God is a potter. And in the hands of the potter, human failings and sin do not merely become an occasion for discarding the project he started. But ratherly, he can take the failings of human plans and with his strong hands reshape them, shaping them directly into his divine purposes. In the hands of the potter, the failure of human plans can be formed, reshaped into the fulfillment of divine purposes. This will become the keynote that the rest of the people in the Bible and us need to never forget. So let's turn now to the Tower of Babel. We're going to see these two notes, the failures of man and the grace of God, and then we're going to see how they come together. And we'll begin with man's failures, or we'll start with the heading, if this is helpful for you. The towers that men build and why they fail. We'll look at that for a bit in the first half of the passage, and then we'll turn from the failures of man to the grace of God, and we'll look at the city God builds and how it's shaped. So the towers of men, then the city of God. Building things is not bad. It's part of how God designed us. He gave us minds that can dream and invent. He gave us hands that can build and shape. It's not a bad thing to want to build. Some of my earliest memories as a little boy are playing with blocks. I would build huge towers. I thought they were amazing. So I read the story of the Tower of Babel and I think, yeah, sure. That's not a bad idea. Build a tower. Learn how to make bricks and blocks and design. But you can also build for bad purposes. And that's what we'll see with Babel. The account is nine verses that break into two parts. Verses one through four, the actions of 
people. Verses five through nine, the actions or response of God. And in the first part, act one, as we see the actions of man, we begin with an outward view upon it that then gives us an inward insight. So outwardly, when we look at the actions of men, we find that after the flood, people are migrating eastward. They settle in the plain of Shinar, which is modern day the area of Iraq, it's Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent near the Persian Gulf. They find a plain with probably some palm trees. It looks like a good place to live. That's verse two. In verse three, we learn that they come together and they're making bricks. Maybe they invented it. Maybe this is to be seen as the beginning of technological advance. They're making bricks, they're baking them, they're putting them together with mortar. They're learning how to build. Now these are all just outward actions and they come together and they decide they're going to build a city and a tower. Now nothing about this on on its outside at first looks wrong. Unless you notice a a word in verse 2. It's the word settle. If you've been paying attention to Genesis, did God command human beings to go settle? His first command in Genesis 1.28 is to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. After the flood, when Noah represents a new beginning, God gives the exact same command. He blesses Noah and his sons, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This is Genesis 9, verse 1, repeated in verse 7. So when you see the word settle, right after God has commanded humanity to spread, You should just be alert. Something seems to be off. And what's off is further explained when in verse 4, the narrator moves from an outward observation of the actions of men to inward motives. Verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So look at that in your Bible, or maybe we can get it up on the screen here, I don't know. But if you look at verse four in your Bible, I wanna show you two motives that operate underneath the building of the Tower of Babel. One is pride and one is control. We see pride where it says they're gonna build this tower to make a name for themselves. Now, God has created humanity in his image. They're they're glory creatures, if you will. They're made like mirrors that are supposed to go out, go throughout the whole earth, and by bringing God's good rule and good ways, and by doing good worship, they're like little light bulbs that light up the sky and give glory to God. Here, they're actually building something to give glory to themselves. So the tower represents most acutely their arrogance and pride. It's a tower that's built, it says, to the heavens. We might have a picture of it to put up there. One Jewish writer describes the tower like this. It's a lofty, massive, solid brick, multi-stage temple tower. Now this was a real tower. It was a ziggurat in Babylon. That's a fancy word for these towers that look like a big wedding cake, like layer after layer after layer. It's rooted in the earth with its head lost in the clouds. It was taken to be the meaning point of heaven and earth, the center of the universe, the navel of the earth. And in the flat plains of Mesopotamia, 
the plains of Shinar, the ziggurat was like a great mountain dominating the landscape. And it was where humanity could travel or reach up to heaven. So in Babel, man is striving to be divine. He's striving to make an eternal name for himself rather than humbling himself to bear the name of his maker. So pride is operating inside the building of the Tower of Babel. But there's a second sin at work when we think of the inner motives. Did you notice how the verse didn't just say they wanted to make a name for themselves? It said, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. They don't want to spread out. Why? Well, it's dangerous to be a nomad and a wanderer in an unpopulated world. And cities in the ancient world, they had walls around them. And these walls represented protection. And within the walls were storehouses of grain and different foods. So if you were in a city, you were protected from without and you had food and resources. So what's going on here is that humanity is saying, we need to double down and watch our own backs. We need to protect ourselves and provide for ourselves. But God's call on humanity to fill the earth was going to require that they go out into an unknown and they have to learn and practice what the Bible will call faith. Faith is trust that God will take care of you, protecting you and providing for you. And incidentally, the very next chapter of the Bible is about a man. Do you know what his name is? Abraham who is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon. And what does Abraham model that the Babylonians don't? Abraham is the one who goes out into the unknown without protection and provision, save his God. And so what we have operating when we see the motives for the Tower of Babel is a rejection of both the duty of man to glorify God and the calling of man to trust his maker. Now, this is the first point where I think the text asks us to pause and ask ourselves a question. What motives lie beneath what you're building, what I'm building? Humans build things. You build your report card, all A's. You build, you build your resume. You, you build a reputation, you build a company, you build a career, you build a family, you build a Christian ministry. And these are towers that will either be erected to make a great name for me, and they will be erected to ultimately provide provision and protection for me because I can't trust God, or they will be done in such a way that honors the Lord. It's a probing question this passage asks. And God evaluates our towers. That's what happens next. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now don't miss the irony here. They had built a tower up to heaven. Heaven is where God dwells. And in verse 5 it says, the Lord came down. This is what you might call holy scorn. God's going, it, is, that, is that a little stick in the Persian Gulf? Oh, that's a tower. 
Wow. You became the president. Wow. You got into that college and you have a diploma on your wall. Wow. Look at your bank account. Impressive. It's not that God doesn't care like a parent does for a child when we work hard and build things. But those towers that we think actually reach up to heaven to counter or threaten his throne, he wants us to know in this passage, they are pathetic in his eyes. The Lord is enthroned above the circle earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers to him, says the prophet Isaiah. Now, I want us to think for a second. God goes on in, in this scene. He comes down, he looks at the little stick, and he, he's concerned because humanity seems to be forming a global superpower that will shut out any access to him and cut off the whole entire globe from people knowing the Lord. And so he, he puts a ceiling on it. He confuses their language, which stops their ability to collaborate, and he spreads them out. But I want us to ask at this point, but before we turn to how God would want us to build a city or a tower versus this, before we turn to that, I want you to think about how Israel would have read this story. I said in our first sermon on Genesis, and, and I want you to remember this, that the most important historical question to ask when you read the early chapters of Genesis is not, when did God begin to create the earth? Like, how old is it exactly? That's not the most important historical question. The most important historical question is, when did God decide to reveal these truths about the beginning of the world? And he chose to do that through Moses to the people of Israel while they were wandering in a desert wilderness. Now think about this for a minute. The people of Israel have had two experiences in life thus far. Slaves in Egypt, under that city's great glistening pyramids and rich culture. And then they got to be nomads in nowhere. And so Israel now is on the cusp of the promised land. This is it for them. They've arrived. The promised land will be sprinkled with Canaanite cities powerful cities like Jericho, surrounded with walls, some with towers. What God wants to say to Israel is two things at this point. As they stand on the cusp of the promised land, he wants to, on the one hand, warn them. Do not be over-impressed with the cities of men. They will be alluring, but do not be drawn in Israel. I am your God. I will build you a city. He's warning them, and he's also warning us, all of his people. Babylon was the great city, and this was the great tower. There are great things being constructed in the modern world. God's like, you walked on the moon. Wow. We do amazing things. We have Google. We have the Internet. We have nations, but God is saying to us, as he was saying to Israel, do not be over-impressed and do not be lured too deeply in. Understand the motives beneath these towers. So he's warning them. He's also encouraging them, though. Later in their lives, they will be exiled to this same city, Babylon. 
And Genesis 11 is about Babylon. That's why it says in verse 9, the city was named Babel. It's about Babylon. So Israel later will be exiled in Babylon, the greatest city. And this is where you read those verses like work for the welfare of the city. It's like, right, work for Babylon. It's really scary. They have to live in Babylon for several decades. And what the Lord wants them to know now is, I am not intimidated by Babylon. I am sovereign. Babylon is a stick figure before me. And sure enough, within 70 years, God calls Darius the Great, the head of Persia, and he crushes Babylon and Darius and Cyprus together send the Israelites back to the promised land. So, so God is saying, do not be afraid of the powers of the world. Israel's little. They're nomads and they're nobodies. And God is asking to look at the great cities of the world and he's saying, do not be afraid. I think these are good messages for us too. So that's, that's a bit about the, the failures of humanity in this scene. It's kind of a corporate sin where together they decide to build a tower for pride and an overreaching for security. But let's now turn, and in the second half of the passage in particular, let's try to analyze what God does because it, I think in what he does, we begin to see not just the towers of man and how they fail, but we begin to see the grace of God. And here we're going to see how God builds his city and how it takes shape. The Bible often um, thinks of God's kingdom as having at its center the city of God. In the Old Testament, it's called Zion. In the New Testament, it's called the New Jerusalem. The city of God is, is that city where God is reigning perfectly and he's sending his laws out and they go into the land and people are safe and there's peace. And in the Bible, the city of God is often compared to the city of man. And the city of man is almost always the city of Babylon. It just kind of is like our Las Vegas. And you see this not only in Genesis 11, but Babylon looms large through the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And then in the book of Revelation, it is the great city Babylon that's set forth as the city that God has to disentangle his people from. So what in this passage might help us understand the difference between how God builds his city compared to how Babylon builds its city? And I just want to suggest three things, all of which you can derive from this passage about the city of God and how it's built. And I want to show how these are relevant for us. So first, God builds his city with the broken bricks of Babylon's. This means God doesn't just go around and quarry perfect stones that have never been ill-used. Rather, he takes these bricks that have been used in Babylon and he actually gathers them to build his own city. I want to show you how this works in our passage. Think about the way God judges Babylon. Right? They're, they're, it's the whole earth, again, coming to sin against him. The last time that happened in Genesis 6, he sent a flood. He doesn't send a flood, but if you look at verse 1 of our passage, it's the whole earth. They're one language and one people, and they're building a tower really against God. So think about how he judges them. You might think, well, you said you wouldn't send a flood, but maybe he'll send a fire, you know, crush them down. Maybe a pestilence, a plague. But do you see what he does? 
I think if you were, if someone asked you, guess how God judges Babylon, I don't think you ever would guess that he does it this way. It's strange. Verse 7, he chooses to judge them by confusing their language. I mean, he creates disunity. I thought God was all about unity. He creates confusion and disunity. Verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This is the first act of breaking them apart. You see, God does not like those unities of men that become estrangements from God. If you build a movement around unity that is built around godlessness, you estrange people from God. And God will break up those towers and rebuild them a unity around his own name. So he confuses their language. He won't let them build a godless unity. But the confusing of their language is the very thing that makes them disperse. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Now these two things are connected. Once the languages are confused, not only can they not work together as well, but they don't want to live together anymore, so they spread out. And here we have the nations and the people groups spreading out all over the whole earth. Now here's the irony. And this is kind of complicated, but we need to see it. Confusing their language accomplishes thwarting their plans, but it does so in a way that actually preserves their lives on the one hand, and on the other hand, it does so in a way that actually flings them right back into the divine purposes for the world. Remember God's early command. We just said it a second ago. Genesis 1.28. God said, fill the earth. God said to Noah and his family. Genesis 9, 1 and 7. Multiply, be fruitful, fill the earth. They're not filling the earth. By confusing their languages and causing them to move out away from each other, God accomplishes his command. Through judging human sin, God brings about his purposes. Let me show you. Verse 9, I want you to notice the last phrase of verse 9 and tell me if you can see God accomplishing his purposes here. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Remember verse 4, they said let's build a tower lest we be scattered or dispersed throughout the whole world. God confuses their language and it ends with the builders of Babel dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Unbeknownst to them, God's very thwarting of their sinful plans is a fulfillment of his divine purposes. You see, God has made the world, he's designed the world to be filled with his creatures. The way he wants to, to fill the sky with stars that light up, he wants to fill the globe with humans that light up because we're glory creatures. We glorify him. We know him. God wants to fill the earth with people. He wants to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as Habakkuk said. And when humans settle, instead of going out, this glory is muted. So God scatters these people, but... He doesn't do it in a way that forgets them. These scattered people 
become the very nations that God begins to pursue to draw back in to his city. And he doesn't wait very long to pursue them. The very next chapter in the Bible says that God sends Abraham out to be a blessing to who? This is Genesis 12, verse 3. He says, in you, Abraham, who's going out from Babylon, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. These people that I've scattered because they were going to build a dark temple, I'm going to regather into the holy city. This theme is throughout scripture then. In Isaiah, the Lord speaks to his servant, I will make you as a light to these nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Jesus dies, we read in John, not for the nation of Israel only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Then in Revelation, the great verse everybody likes, displaying ethnic diversity, it literally says, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, stands before the throne of the Lamb, worshiping. Read in the light of God's larger purposes, God's judgment upon the failures of Babel served to scatter those people right into the stream of his bigger purposes. These failed bricks, they are not just discarded, but their maker, he will find them again. Their nations, he will like a potter, not discard this clay, but press his hands around it and reform not the Tower of Babel, but the New Jerusalem with these same bricks. That's the first thing to notice about how the city of God is built. God will build his city out of the broken bricks of fallen Babylons. And that means you and me and all the people you know who seem to fall away. God is able to bring them back and build his city out of this. Second, the second thing we see about how God builds his city is simply that he builds it by language, more specifically by his word. Language is an unmissable theme in the story of the Tower of Babel. It begins with all the world of one language. It, in the middle, their languages get confused and it ends with many languages. As I've studied this passage this week, I, I've come to the conclusion, I could be wrong, I probably need to think about it more, but I, I began to think that language is actually our most powerful tool. I mean, why else would God be frustrating language in Babel? It's not like he goes down and just breaks at the right arm of all the stone workers. He confuses their language. You see, by language, humans define the world. They then communicate about it, and through language, they bind together, and they share ideas, and they create. It's one of the most profound ways we bear the image of God. But like any powerful tool, it can be profoundly misused. This is why God puts a ceiling on the power of men by confusing their language. He's saying here that a global power that blocks off all of creation from his word will not be allowed. He would rather scatter them into nation states, if you will, and then bring them back together. So 
Babel's trying to build a city around the words of man, which just means man's wisdom, man's way of viewing the world, man's priorities. God scatters them, and then he begins to rebuild the city of God, his people, but around his word. Let me show you. This is quite profound, at least I think. In Genesis 11, verse 5, right, right at the center of our passage, God comes down. Remember, he comes down. And that becomes actually kind of a technical phrase for God appearing to man. The next time we find God coming down, it's Exodus 19. It's not on the plains of Babylon, but it's in the wilderness, and it's on a mountain, not a tower. He comes down on Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 19. And he doesn't come down because man has built a tower to him. He comes down on the mountain and he calls humble Moses to come up. And Israel's told to be very careful. And in Exodus 19, as he comes down, do you know what he does in Exodus 20? Do you know what he gives? He gives the Ten Commandments. So the first thing God does when he comes down to Israel is he speaks his word the Ten Commandments, which Moses takes down to the people, and this now is the language, the speech that will form that nation. And the same theme is there when we move to God forming the church. Acts chapter 2, hang with me, this is a lot of Bible, but we need this. I only get like 30 minutes with you a week. Acts 2, okay? God's building the church. What happens? Tongues of fire come down upon the apostles. And they begin to speak in the language of men from all these different nations from around the world. And what are they saying? They're not giving a weather report. They're speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And through hearing these things, God begins to build his church, the new city, through these stones from all these different nations. The point is simply this. The lasting city will not be built according to the wisdom of men. And we can build amazing things by the wisdom of men. You don't have to know God to build a spaceship. And you don't have to know God to build a skyscraper. But to build something that will last, where there is true health and true holiness and true harmony, it will take the wisdom from our maker. And so with whatever it is God has called you to build, your family, your life, maybe a hospital, maybe you're helping build a school, you're building education, do everything you you can to organize the blocks according to the wisdom of God. This means building a tower that understands that we all will give an account for our lives before God one day and that we'll be alive forever. Whereas the human tower is built around the idea that you only live once. This is all you get. So get everything you can. You see how different the shapes of the blocks will start to be if you're building it according to the word of God. So that's the second thing about how the city of God is built. It is built according to the speech of God, his word. Third, finally, And the monitor is broken in the back, so I have no idea how long this has been. But this is the last point. Third, God builds with the broken bricks of Babylon, turning our failures into his fulfillments. God builds by his word. Third, he builds the city around a tower built for his fame. 
If Babel's greatest sin involved building a tower for their own name, then the city of God will build a tower to the name of the Lord. In, in his masterpiece, The City of God, where St. Augustine is comparing the city of man, in his case Rome, to the city of God, he, he comes to the conclusion, I think this is brilliant, that cities are ultimately built around deep desires, lusts, and loves. And he says that Rome, or Babel, is built around the libido dominandi. It's a Latin term that can roughly be translated, the lust for domination. You might translate it in modern parlance as the will to power. He's saying the human city is built around a will for our own power. The city of God will not be built around the lust to dominate or the lust to control or the lust for our own fame. It will be built around the love of God. It will be built not to objectify others, but to wash their feet. It will be built not to make a lasting name for me or for you, but a lasting name for the Son of God. In Revelation, turning there again, where we begin to see the city coming down, taking shape, we read, Who will not fear, O Lord? And glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. So with the things that we build together, whether it's, it's a church, a charitable organization, a business, by what wisdom are we constructing these things? And, and for whose glory? For whose namesake? I find myself asking this a lot. Sam, are you, are you trying to grow a church for your namesake? And I think in life, um, we can't have perfect motives. Sometimes I try to get 51% good, 49% bad, and, and ask God to have mercy on me. But this is a clarion call for our church and for you personally to be part of building the city that will last, not the towers of Babel, that God will scatter and crush one day, but build those things that lift his name high, that invite the people from all nations in to fellowship around his true word for his true glory. So as the story of Babel closes, it closes out our study of Genesis 1 through 11. And it has indeed reminded us of these two abiding themes that the prelude wants to sound. We've been reminded of the failure of man, the failure of people, we have a proclivity towards sin that's a shame, but it just is how we are in a fallen world. But it also reminded us of the grace of God, a power like strong potter's hands that comes around our failings and doesn't just bear with us, but even turns our failings into divine fulfillments. And God will indeed go about the earth and call the scattered people into community with his son in the city of God. So, Genesis has presented us with our maker, and it has also alerted us to the fact that our maker is our redeemer. And he who has begun a good work in your life, in our church, he will, as the skilled potter that he is, he will see it to completion in Christ Jesus, the second and true Adam, who is our Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, um, we, humbly, um, we humbly stand before the great mountain 
that is Genesis 1 through 11. And Lord, I feel that we haven't even begun to plumb the depths. And for any passages that we've misunderstood or mishandled, please just let those things fall by the wayside. And God, only those abiding truths that you want to use to build us up into your people, let only these remain. And now be with us, your church. May we be yet another stone in that great city, the city that will exalt your son. Amen.